Well, thank you again so much. You know, I've really enjoyed uh, just uh, the privilege of being able to speak together in the morning, uh, certainly with Steve this year. Uh, this is the first time in which, again, because of all that's going on, that the speakers are uh, together. And um, I just wish this morning that there was some time to process, uh, to be honest with you. It was so um, rich, uh, significant, and uh, just even for myself, felt like I needed to just go for a long walk to process uh, the weights that I carry in my life. So again, Steve, thank you so much for your vulnerability. Uh, part of the reason why I, I respect this man so much is um, having uh, walked with him and known him for some time, I know that he uh, imperfectly, by God's grace, walks uh, the talk. Uh, so thank you so much, Steve. Um, if I may, I, I just thought I would just share just a couple really um, um, uh, personal things with you in hopes that you might be uh, willing to, to uh, pray for uh, my wife and I during a significant season of transition uh, for us. Uh, we would really appreciate that. Uh, I've been sharing with you that in the past year, I assumed a new role uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, as the president of an organization called Bread for the World. It's one that a lot of folks may not yet have heard, although it is the largest Christian advocacy organization in the United States. And we center around the issue of hunger. And we believe that there are many ways to tackle to reduce and ultimately to end hunger. There's church pantries, there's direct relief work, there's food banks. Uh, but in addition to those things, the most significant way that we believe we can help reduce hunger is through um, a moral, just, compassionate, courageous legislation as well. Many, many years ago, a couple of decades ago, uh, President George Bush signed a bill called the PEPFAR bill that literally saved hundreds of millions of lives around the world. And sometimes as Christians, we feel like we shouldn't engage politics. And I think what we really mean is that we shouldn't be partisan. And there's a difference between engaging politics and being partisan, where we give blind allegiance to a politician or to a party. And so I want you to know, as someone that does not enjoy politics, that politics matter because it informs policies that impact people. Uh, and so if you could just uh, pray uh, for me and my wife as we continue on this journey. It's been a really challenging first year. Uh, working remotely, but with all that's going on, the idea of bipartisanship is incredibly challenging. I spend the bulk of my time meeting with members of Congress, meeting with members of the White House administration, giving testimonies to different committees to help inform budgets and so forth. Right now, we're trying to push a very important global nutrition bill for approximately $350 million to go into supporting children around the world. Uh, there are significant things that we're doing right now to advocate for SNAP and WIC benefits for neighbors in our cities and our nation. Some of you might know that childhood hunger quadrupled this past year in the United States as a result of COVID. You may have seen the endless lines around food banks. Now, that is a reality, and I'm so grateful that when I read the scriptures, Jesus cared, yes, about people's spiritual souls, 
But if you read John 6, it says that he had compassion on people to suggest that he also cared about their physical well-beings, that he cared for the whole of our lives. And so I'm grateful that I get a chance to come and speak at Mount Hermon to continue to teach God's word. Uh, But uh, if you ever think about hunger in the United States or around the world, please check out bread.org slash Eugene. And you can just figure out ways that you might be able to partner with us. If you're really, really bored, uh, uh, probably about once a month, you'll see me on C-SPAN on testimonies. Um, And every time you do see me, please do pray uh, for the path that God has for us. We would really appreciate that. Friends, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 to 39. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 to 39. And obviously the scripture will be on the screens as well. Listen now for the word of God. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner." Father, thank you again so much for this week, for this retreat, and now again at this moment as we open up your word. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, and all God's people said, amen. In many ways, the scripture is self-explanatory. A religious leader, a Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, he invites Jesus to have dinner with him along with some of his other religious experts. And even just at that moment, we begin to see the poignancy of this particular passage that if you were to juxtapose the posture, the humility of this woman that we'll eventually get to know, and in a sense, the hubris, to juxtapose the humility and the hubris, the arrogance of the Pharisee and the other religious leaders. It's not just in this instance, but in numerous places around the Gospels, particularly when Jesus engages the Pharisees, I find it to be so painful that these religious leaders who've devoted years of their life studying God's word, studying about Yahweh, understanding laws and regulations and codes, engaging in rituals, being mentored by some of the most brilliant religious minds, and yet when Jesus the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, even when Jesus is in their midst, they miss him. And I think about the painful 
painful reality of how that could also be something that you and I might be seduced into as well. Now, this might sound a little abrasive, but let me just say it and let me explain it. As a pastor over the years, I've learned that sometimes the most difficult people to lead to Jesus are Christians. or perhaps cultural Christians. It's possible for you and I to know stuff about Jesus, to know information about Jesus, to know the sayings of Jesus, to gather in the house of Jesus, to come to a family camp like this one. But it's also an entirely different thing to submit and surrender our lives to Jesus. It's in this particular context that we're introduced to this woman who enters this room, a room full of Pharisees and religious experts. It's the comparison of the who's who and the who's not. And the reason why this is really important to pause for a moment and examine ourselves is that when you and I read Scripture, if we're not careful when there's a word of conviction, a word of just um, of, of grace, but a word of conviction in Scripture to us, I find it so interesting that at least, here's my confession, I find myself instead of thinking, this is a word for me, my first thought is, who is this a word for? That my inclination is to want to be a prophetic voice to others without necessarily wondering, is this a prophetic word for me? In our culture of outrage, I sometimes want to shout and scream, woe unto you. And yet Isaiah, the first thing that he does is woe unto me. And I think this is the key between the posture of these religious leaders and this woman. As you know, this woman enters and we're simply given the description that she is a sinful woman. And I suspect that she was the person that wherever she walked around during this particular community, people either whispered or they basically out loud accused her, condemned her, judged her. Wicked and lewd and vile and harlot, prostitute, whore, and the list goes on. Some scholars believe that she was also likely a Gentile, and so there were more accusations and judgments. It was also wrong, unacceptable for a woman, especially a woman of her status, to even have the audacity to enter this room. And so I can just imagine these men, these religious leaders, these Pharisees being up in arms that this woman would have the audacity to enter this house and then to approach a rabbi like Jesus, which according to some was worthy of being stoned. And it's that scene where I think it's so powerful that Jesus stops And again, gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. When these men were again 
hurling accusations, Jesus extends mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Today, I want to speak to you a little bit about grace. As we're speaking about spiritual formation, I want you to know that grace needs to be the anchor and foundation of our spiritual formation. Everything that we do, the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's speak about grace. Because this story is an embodiment, an expression, a beautiful story of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, it's possible that if You've gone to church for some years, as I have. I became a Christian at the age of 18. After a while, some words, you use it so often that you're not quite sure how to explain it when someone says, explain grace to me. And I think grace is one of those examples used, beautiful, powerful, but used so often, preached about, sung about, that we're not quite sure what it is and perhaps some of the dangers or myths about that particular theological truth. So friends, what is grace? The best, most succinct definition that I've heard over the years is by a pastor theologian by the name of Paul Enns. And Paul defines grace in this way. Listen carefully. He says, grace may be defined as the unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. Once more, grace may be defined as the unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 21, simply says, quote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If I'm losing you, let me try to give you an illustration to see if this can somehow get a bit more personal and drilled into our heart and mind so that it's not just a, a theological construct, concept, or a Bible verse. I suspect that many of us here have our licenses and drive or have driven at some point in our lives. Driving is a big deal in our home right now because we have basically three teenagers who are regularly just trying uh, to have the authority to drive the cars whenever they want, and it's a challenge trying to make sure uh, we have access to our cars. My wife and I sometimes find ourselves stuck at home, uh, and we're saying, uh, let's get on my bike, and, we'll, and by bike, I mean my one speed uh, around town, basically. But as a younger driver, and now I'm turning 51, uh, I, I want to confess that there have been occasions where my foot has been a little heavy. Uh, that's another way of saying um, I like to go fast. And so on one occasion, uh, I got caught uh, on the Interstate 5. That's the only interstate that I know, Steve, okay? Because that's the main freeway in Seattle, I'm on Interstate 5, 
And this is a true story. I went fast, unknowingly. Uh, unknowingly, I was in a rental car and I was going fast. And the cop pulls me over. And as the cop pulls me over, I'm incredibly nervous and anxious. The cop knocks on the window. I'm not quite sure what to do. I roll down the window, and the cop says, young man, do you know how fast you were going? I honestly didn't know. I, I, I don't know, officer. The cop says, you were going 81 miles per hour. Like for you guys in California, that's not a big deal. <laughs> I know that. You're, you're like, what? You're like slow poke. <laughs> context, context. In Seattle, the cop says this is a 55 mile per hour zone and you're going 81. The cop goes to his car and for a few minutes, I'm just in the car concerned. And these are the moments when we have a spiritual revival. We start praying for the miracle. Let's be honest. And the cop comes back and then says to me, Young man, you are going 81, 55 mile per hour zone. Please be careful. Here's your ticket. I complained. I'm upset. Now, no matter what we might think or feel, what just transpired here is an example of human justice. Right? Because I broke the law. I can complain and rant and get on Facebook and say whatever I want to say, but the reality was I was speeding and therefore broke the law and therefore justice was served. Imagine that exact same story. The cop comes back after going to the car, doing perhaps his analysis or check, and he basically says, young man, um, I'm going to let you go. It's Asian American month. That's never happened. <laughs> also, May was AAPI month. And the cop says, I'm going to let you go. And whenever I share this illustration with people and I ask them, what is this? The majority of Christians just impulsively say, that's grace. That's not grace. That's mercy. The cop was merciful. So what's grace in this illustration? Grace in this illustration is the cop coming back, the law enforcement officer says, young man, you were going 81 miles per hour, 55 mile per hour zone. I think it was a $236 ticket. And the law officer, imagine a scenario where the law enforcement officer goes into his own wallet, takes out the penalty of the ticket, pays for that ticket, and then goes into his wallet and brings out all the money that he has and says, I want to bless you. What have I just described? It's crazy. It's irrational. 
it reminds me again of what Paul N. shared. Grace may be defined as the unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. I think in many ways, the challenge about grace is that we've somehow reduced it into this bite-sized manner in which we can so fully, in a human way, quantify it and understand it. And while there are noble efforts, I just also want you to realize that it is an irrational act of God's unmerited love, mercy, and grace unto us. So for that reason, I think many folks have misunderstood grace in a variety of ways. So let me walk you through five mistakes that we make in regards to grace. Five mistakes in which we make about grace. Here's mistake number one, is that we think we don't need that grace. We think we don't need God's grace. Sometimes I'll find myself in my arrogance thinking, I'm not like that person. Sometimes I'll watch the news about horrible things that people have done or people have said in their worst moments or whatever, and I'll think to myself, man, I am not like that person, thank God. I'm not like that man. I'm not, not, not like that woman. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a drug dealer. And the list goes on. And somehow I think to myself, I don't really need God's grace. This is where we need to be reminded of the truth in Scripture in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I hate to burst anyone's bubble that what that means is every single one of us here. That yes, while we have been given the grace of God... It also means scripture saying that we deserve judgment, death, and condemnation. We live in a culture that wants to speak about grace and yet relinquish any conversation about sin and condemnation. Now, this is going to be really awkward and tense, but over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, as a pastor for many, many years, I've noticed a trend where anytime I speak about the subject of sin, instantaneously, right after the sermon, Sunday night, surely by Monday morning, I get tons of emails from people. This is really uncomfortable. You're triggering me. Why do you have to speak about sin? Part of the reason why I think it's so important to speak about sin, not just because we're called to be truth tellers, but when you and I understand the depth of our sinfulness and our brokenness, it's at that moment we begin to understand in ways that we haven't done so before, the depth of God's grace. They're connected together. So if we think our sin, our far awayness from God is this, then God's grace is simply something we can manage and domesticate and package. 
I'm not trying to be that preacher who's thumping you over your head about your sinfulness. It's in speaking of that truth then we can speak of truly good news. Our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. I think for myself, even though I became a Christian at the age of 18, it was a few years later when I began to understand just for a glimpse how far away I was, and I began to sing Amazing Grace in a very different way. Here's mistake number two. We have a tendency of grabbing grace for ourselves. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you, friends, is that we cannot save ourselves. And sometimes, even in our Christian theology or culture, there's a tendency for us to mix the salvation of God, the hand of God, the grace of God with self-help Pop psychology, how do we better ourselves? Now here's the thing, I'm not suggesting that you can't better yourself. It's important for us to better ourselves. I'm not saying that you can't see coaches and therapists and counselors and spiritual directors and pastors and the list goes on. I'm saying that there's a difference between acknowledging people who assist us but our salvation never comes from human sources, including ourselves. This is the reason why when we look at pastors, and I think we should have a culture in which we honor, respect, appreciate, love our pastors, but to always know that pastors are merely, as Martin Luther says, and I love how Martin Luther says this, he says, quote, we are all beggars. We are all mere beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Anytime a pastor, a theologian, a teacher comes across somehow in this ultra superior way, in some ways I feel like there's this image of the hubris of the Pharisees. I hope you don't walk away this week thinking that Steve and I are on a different plane, a different level. We are merely beggars trying to point the way for other people to find the true bread of life. Here's the third mistake that we make. We think grace gives us license to keep sinning. This is my favorite. A German pastor, theologian, and anti-Nazi activist by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer simply refers to this as cheap grace. Let me share more. In his book, he defines cheap grace in this way, and it just cuts straight to the heart. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Here's the 
power of God's grace is such that God's grace can meet you and I wherever we are. Praise be to God. That means right now, no matter where you are, in your season, in your relationship with God, I truly believe God loves you right now just where you are. There's nothing that you could do or not do that would make God love you more or less. God loves you right now. But God's grace is so powerful that when we encounter this amazing grace, it begins to renew and transform each and every single one of us. It isn't licensed for us to simply keep going on our own agenda, our own desires, to be mired in our own sinfulness. Again, as a pastor over the years, I've, I've learned that particularly, well, not just with young people, but with people of all generations, I've come to learn that folks have a very... Um, uh, lukewarm response when I share about the word repent. And I think in part it's because we have some baggage with that word. Maybe it's at a camp or a church. Maybe someone literally thumped you over the head to say repent. I actually believe repentance. And I'm going to just slow down and tone down my language a little bit. I think repent is one of the most beautiful words in scripture. And let me explain to you why I think repent is one of the most beautiful words because repent literally means God says, I have a better way for you. So turn and come to me. Can you imagine the God of the universe who knows you, who knows you, who knows you, who knows us intimately well because God created us. God knows the formation, the design for human flourishing. This God who sees us mired in behavior or actions or thought that are contrary to the kingdom, to the heart, to the character of God, loving us so much to say, repent. I have a better way for you. So as a fellow brother in Christ, as a fellow journey person, as someone who's also on this marathon, living by God's grace, clearly imperfect, if any of you as sisters and brothers if you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit this week or in recent weeks about something in your life that you know is not honoring and pleasing to God, with the most joyful words I want to tell you as a brother in Christ, repent. God has a better way, and I want you to know that is good news. Here's the fourth mistake that we can make. We think someone is outside God's redemptive grace. Let's be honest. We've heard this now on a couple of occasions. 
through Steve's teachings in particular, where when we see someone, when we're talking about loving our neighbors, we often are enamored by loving people that look like us, think like us, feel like us, worship like us, vote like us, and the list goes on. And it's easy to love people in Jerusalem, but perhaps in Judea or Samaria or the ends of the earth, it is very convenient to simply turn away. Think about this story here. In this passage, can you imagine having the word sinner as your only descriptive? It's not that that word is untrue, because I'm a sinner, but can you imagine if you walked away and somebody asked you, hey, how was that, uh, uh, how was that Asian speaker? Which is an awkward question. And what if you said, he was a sinner. And they'll say, can you elaborate? He was a sinner. <laughs> can you imagine that's the only descriptive? And with each of us, the danger about sin are the extremes in which we never speak about it or that's the only form, the only lens by which we define other people. There is stories, our families, our joys, our passions, our hopes, our ambitions, our dreams, all of that to be reduced. One's humanity, the scripture saying this person created wonderfully, fearfully in the image of God, reduced to one word, a sinner. That's what it says in verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And here's my response, exactly. Jesus knows exactly who she is, that yes, there is sin in her life, but that she is also fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. In other words, friends, I want you to realize no sin is greater than God's grace. No sin, no mistake in your life is greater than God's grace. No mistake in someone's life, in your enemy's life, is greater than God's grace. No transgression is greater than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. John Newton, the former slave trader, once wrote these words in preparation of him writing the song Amazing Grace. He says, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Amen. So right now, as you're reflecting perhaps on even Steve's earlier sermon about forgiveness... If we think someone is outside God's redemptive love and grace, we need a new theology of God's love and grace. I love how Brian Stevenson, the founder of Equal Justice Initiative, the author of the book Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, in his TED Talk and in the book, he simply defines, I think, grace in this way. Each of us 
is more than the worst thing we've ever done. During the times of Jesus, I want you to know that when they saw this woman, that was the singular lens. When someone had a physical illness, a physical disability, most of the people who saw, for example, a leper, a paralytic, their assumption was this person is cursed by God. And it wasn't just the physical pain, it was the emotional, spiritual weight of knowing that nearly every single person that walked past you every single day saw you as one cursed by God. Friends, hear this well. Don't make this mistake that someone is outside God's redemptive love and grace. I'm not saying that it's easy. And I think Steve explained this really well. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I believe every single person has the possibility of encountering God's amazing love and grace. As you know, right now, there's a, a, the NBA championships going on. And I have really have felt pressure from Steve's sermon to at least insert one sports illustration in all of these sermons here. Yes, I love sports, but in particular, the NBA championships is very, very interesting to me. And the reason why I'm intrigued by the NBA championships, yes, as someone that played basketball in high school as a point guard, I can't anymore. I've ruptured both Achilles, blown out both my knees, so I'm very slow now. But it's not the athletes that I'm really following. I mean, granted, I'm watching them, I'm watching them compete, but the storyline Every single time I watch this guy pop up in the TV screen, every time I think about his story. Who am I talking about? It's the coach of the Phoenix Suns, Monty Williams. Now, you might not be familiar with the story, but his story in a very painful way became national, even international news, I believe in 2015. Now, what happened in 2015? This is a great coach. But everyone says this is one of the greatest people that they've ever met. Full of humility, regularly acknowledges his shortfallenness. But in 2015, his wife and I believe four kids or three kids were in the car and they got hit by a 51, 52-year-old driver who was on drugs. The children survived. His wife, Ingrid, died. The NBA world, so many people just kind of honed in. Like voyeurs that we are, trying to see how he would respond. And this is irrational grace. At his wife's funeral... This is what Coach Monty Williams said. I'll never forget this speech. Coach Monty Williams said, quote, I want to close with this. And I think it's the most important thing we need to understand. Everyone is praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in the situation. And that family 
needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard, it is very hard, and that was tough, but we hold no ill will toward the Donaldson family. And we as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. Grace is irrational. And what shocked me about that was it puzzled everybody. And I know because I spoke with friends at that time, neighbors who were not Christians, who were asking, what's the story behind this guy? It can't help but invite people to consider the God behind such imperfect but compelling faith. Here's the last mistake that we make. We think we're not worthy of God's love. It's not just about loving others. Sometimes, if you're like me, I find the most difficult person to love is myself. Because I'm so aware of my brokenness, I'm so susceptible to the voices that tell me you're not enough. You're not smart enough, you're not brilliant enough, you're not pastoral enough, you're not holy enough, you're not successful enough, you're not blank enough, and as a result, I can drown in a sort of self-hatred. God loves the world, but friends, God also loves you. I want you to know that God's grace, hear this carefully, God's grace is actually not about you. It's about the character and the heart of God. It's who God is. And this is why I'm telling you right now, right at this moment, there's nothing more or less that you can do to make God love you more or less. If we simply receive and acknowledge that this God loves let me close with an illustration, and I know that we're getting uh, late on time here. Uh, this is an awkward question, but I'm just going to ask to see if anyone might be able to help me. Anyone here, uh, when I share this with folks at my church, uh, it's a digital congregation, so no one even carries paper currency. It's all Venmo and so forth. Anyone here have a $100 bill that I can borrow? A $100 bill in your wallet all right. Sir, do you mind if I borrow uh, your $100 bill? Great. Thank you so much. And remind me again your name, sir? Kirk. Kirk. All right, Kirk. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but where, uh, where I come from, this is a lot of money. This is a lot of money. And aside from the fact that we're both 
believers and followers of God, Kirk obviously wants his money back. Okay? And, and I promise it'll come back to you. But friends, listen. Uh, would you agree that this is a lot of money? It's a lot of money. And if I were to say to you, who wants $100? I would suspect that most of us, including this man who didn't realize it was a rhetorical question, raised his hand. <laughs> I get you. I, I'm the, I get you. Like, we want this money. Like, when I use this illustration at my church comprised of a lot of college students, I mean, people are just jumping in line for $100. But what if I were to crumple it? <laughs> Sir, what's your name? Jeremy. Jeremy, would you still want this? I'm a little nervous because he's, he's a bigger guy. <laughs> uh, but what if I said, um, you are worthless and you amount to nothing. You still want this? <laughs> what if I were to... You still want this? I'll leave it here without it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, security? Secur security? Uh, what if I were to... You still want this? Friends, let's be honest. The reason why he wants it and most of us want it is because no matter what's happened to this, it's never lost its value. Never. 